Welcome, all you weirdos, for Cohen refugees, and everyone who has ever felt like you might just be trapped in a rapidly collapsing void. Thank you for joining us for your 68th Weird Dose of X, the mutant member of your Weird Science family. I'm your host, Jason, broadcasting from the Wrong Turn Studio high atop stately Weird Science Tower, and here with me live just after visiting a churrasco restaurant with Sunspot and Shark Girl is my man Ruben. Hey, Ruben, how the heck are you today? Um, I'm good, except I feel annoyed now by that. Oh, I, I... Do not associate me with that garbage story. Oh, wow. <laughs> Already jumping to the end here. Yeah, there was a backup title in X-Men Red this week that was maybe the tone was a little off from what we did to, but it did make me think like I want to go out for some, some nice Brazilian steak. So that's a happy thought, isn't it? Yes. Who doesn't it enjoy was... a good Brazilian yes. steak? The writing in that was hilariously bad. It was like, Wasn't hi, great. Jason. It's really nice talking to you as a <laughs> podcaster for Weird Dose of X. Isn't that fun? Oh, well, well, that's my bad for, for bringing up bad ideas. But we have some other stuff to talk about this week. Uh, in, in fact, uh, some, some pretty big happenings as we roll ever closer to the end of the Krakoan era. It's time to start wrapping up those loose ends because there's, there's not all that much time left. And unless you're Ben Percy. We'll get to that in a second. The books we're talking about this week are... X-Force number 45, Wolverine number 38, and X-Men Red number 16. But but first, we have some news, because this was New York Comic Con weekend. And that's where all the big news comes out. Now, in the big picture, Marvel's X-Men panel mostly confirmed things we already knew. We're going era ending next year to be capped off by the fall of the House of X and rise of the Powers of X titles, written by Jerry Duggan and Kieran Gillen, respectively. Uh, editor Jordan White will then be leaving the X office. New editor Tom Brevoort will be coming on in to start whatever comes next. We don't know anything about that yet. I made a few predictions in the past couple weeks, and, and some of those look not so hot. Uh, I had suggested that Fothox and Rotpox would be alternating weekly series the same way the original Hawkspox was. And they didn't say anything about that, and right now there's only one issue of each series showing up on the Previews World website. Which makes me think, yeah, it kind of looks more like these are going to be monthly series. So the full ending of the Krakoan era of the Krakoan era won't then come until something like late spring, early summer, 2024. The solicitations for those series are kind of spoilery, so I'm not going to talk about them here. Listeners, you can Google them up if you want to. I will say that the Duggan Fall book is said to be set in the current day, kind of right following right on from what happens in these current books. While the Gillen Rise book is set 10 years, or possibly X years, into the future. Exactly what that means for our storylines, I'm not even going to speculate. But it, uh, it makes you think, doesn't it? Those sound like fun to you? <laughs> yeah. Are you, uh, are you happy to be stretching the end out a little further, or were you hoping for a big weekly boom, 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 like Hotspots? Yeah, I was kind of hoping for a nice bookend. Now that I know that the future is right around the corner, I don't need to linger. Here anymore. Yeah, it, w- it would have been cool to wrap it up. I'm sure they probably need some time for uh, you know, Brevor and whoever he's having write his new uh, you know, series to get their, their uh, ducks in a row. So they're yeah. going to stretch that a little bit longer. Uh, I had also predicted that the return of Magneto title, written by Al Ewing, I said, yeah, I think that's just going to be a one shot. Yeah, nope, wrong again. It's a four issue mini. We'll have a major Storm presence, which makes sense. Storm is one of Ewing's major characters. She's the one that Magneto told, hey, don't bring me back. So if he's going to be coming back, she's got to be involved. So we'll get some more Storm and Magneto stuff from you. 
I had further predicted that the rest of the X-Books would wrap up before Fothox Rotpox even started. I said, I think all their final issues are coming in December. And yeah, that wasn't correct either, at least in one instance. And I'm going to go back out on the limb and say, I think this is the only one that's going to keep going. Wolverine, currently at issue 38, they say that's going to go all the way to landmark issue number 50. So a dozen more issues left. The final 10-issue arc will be called... You, you haven't heard this, right, Fred Rubin? This is news no, to you? this is all news to me. Okay, final 10-issue arc called Sabretooth War. It'll be published twice monthly. will be co-written by Ben Percy and... Any guesses? <laughs> is this the long tease, Sabretooth War? It, well, this is Victor Laval. So yeah, the big okay. finale of his Sabretooth and the Exile story is going to be wrapped up into the Wolverine title. Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting choice because um, these are two very different writers, right? Ben Percy, uh, action, 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 like a, a movie with lots of explosions and things happening and don't think about it too hard. And Victor Laval is doing this you know, social commentary, deeper themes, trying to tie in real world history. Not really sure how that's going to work out together, but yeah, we'll, we'll find out. You know, it might, maybe they will balance each other out. Maybe this will be like a perfect pairing. That is a very optimistic way of looking at it. It, it could happen. Uh, also, I, this makes me think that maybe Logan's not going to be all that big a part of the fall of the House of X story because he's going to be busy doing other stuff. Yeah, that maybe. makes sense. It's kind of funny because it was sort of suggested in Laval's prior writing that the Sabretooth War took place like within the Krakoa era, and then we just never heard anything about it. So, Yeah, I think a lot of plans... I'm not. Sh- I think the end of the era may have caught some writers a little up short. They might not have known. I'm thinking it, it does seem like from something we're going to talk about later t- today that uh, Ben Percy might not be hanging out on the X Slack all that much. He doesn't know what's going on. Maybe some things don't seem to quite line up, but uh, we'll see. Well, all of these, the Fothox, Rotpox, Resurrection of Magneto, and the Sabretooth War, those all kick off in January, and everything ends, I think, a- around June, unless I'm wrong again. It happens. Well, that's the news. Any uh, any questions or comments there, Ruben, from uh, all that good stuff? Yeah, I, I'm going to say until I see who the writers are on the next era, I am worried that I'm not going to be happy with the page turn. But I am fine moving on from this era. It's just really a question of who, who are they going to bring in? And it sounds like they're doing some house cleaning, which is fine, right? Like, I'm always happy to get fresh voices and all that. But I, I just really don't know who they can bring in that's going to be an upgrade. And that makes me cautiously concerned. Yeah, uh, this is the first era of X-Men that I've been reading in real time and was, was kind of really into, which is, you know, how I ended up on this side of a microphone. But, uh, but, but yeah, it's hard. I mean, they could lean into the kind of indie-ish, high-concept things, kind of like Hickman was doing, or they might revert back to kind of standard X-Men at the mansion, having a school, bringing some kids in, hated and feared, all those kind of more common tropes from the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000. Hard to say. And all that can go. be done fine. I mean, we had that with Morrison. His old X Men run was kind of at the mansion, and I loved it. But you, I don't know. We just needed to know who the writers are. If they're like cleaning house and bringing back Teeny Howard, that that would be a big downgrade in my mind. <laughs> that, yeah, if that news does break, you will hear about it here, and you will will hear the the, the tears in my voice. Yeah. Okay. Well, so. I'm going to go out on record and say if they appoint Teeny Howard as the showrunner, then I'm probably retiring as a podcaster at that point. 
Well, uh, 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 listeners, check your local LinkedIn listings to, to see if we're looking for some, some extra help around here. But in happier news today, we are talking about, uh, first off, one book that came out last week, but that we kicked into this week because we were all busy with that Hickman God stuff. That book is X-Force number 45, A Slip of the Pen, written by Ben Percy, art by Robert Gill, colors by Guru Effects, letters by Joe Caramagna, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bone. Now, Let's remember where we are. We have Mikhail Rasputin, evil brother of Colossus and Magic. He chose the night of the Hellfire Gala to spring his big plan, and this was poor timing as Orcus and Nimrod beat him to the punch. Result was that Mikhail's attack was called off, and as a consolation prize, he took most of X-Force captive, with Sage and Domino still running around free, working to rescue their teammates. Mikhail has ordered his literary reality warping servant Chronicler to drop his control of Colossus, and to switch that attention to someone from Orcus instead, seeing as how Orcus now runs the world. This issue goes back and forth between Domino and Sage on the outside, and the Mikhail, Chronicler, Colossus story on the inside. So let's let's take them separately, starting with Domino and Sage. This starts off with a pretty funny two-page scene where Domino and Sage try to remind Deadpool that, hey, you know, Wade, technically, you're, you're still part of this team. And you should probably be helping us out. Wade, not so interested. What? Why? Why doesn't Wade want to come back and, and help out his teammates here? Uh, well, pragmatically, he's enjoying laying on a like poolside and getting nice service. But he basically says, "Hey, I'm on a new team." Yeah, he thinks and, he's got a promotion. Yeah, he's working with Captain America over on the Uncanny Avengers. Uh, he loves Cap. Will do anything Cap has to ask him to do. And plus, Krakoa's not existing anymore, so. Any perks that came with being part of X-Force, you know, hanging out on those beaches, having those tiki drinks, they don't exist anymore. So, yeah. Sorry, Domino and Sage. But this is kind of like uh, uh, Wade getting a, a fond farewell from this book. I mean, I, I think that it's a nice thing to do. It's, I think it's a smart move by Percy because he just kind of disappeared. And we get a little 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 goodbye here. And I, I don't think we'll be seeing uh, any more Deadpool, the final few issues of this run. But, you know, I could be wrong Fun little scene. Now, Sage and Domino have one more play to make this issue. They take that ring that they got a couple issues back, uh, the one that Mikhail had given to a Russian mobster, they bring it to Doctor Strange. Now, it's a, a mutant thing, not a magic thing, not entirely in his wheelhouse, but close enough. We get a data page in which Stephen Strange tries to describe Mikhail's famously vague matter manipulation powers. Yeah, I have to admit, I, I laughed about this. <laughs> yeah, you, you can tell it's Ben Percy trying to get a handle on what Mikhail actually does, right? I, I don't think he anybody is. knows. Nobody's really defined it, so he no. might as well. Yeah. Now, and this the, is fine. I mean, maybe maybe the issue is people just haven't worked with him enough to see everything he can do, right? That seems to be what they're insinuating. Like, this is what we've seen, and we've kind of reversed yeah, it into a like mystery, this, this understanding. They, make it, they take a mystery from the reader's point of view, and they say, yeah, it's, it's also a mystery in the universe. Okay, that, that's fine. We'll go. We'll go with that. Now, the key bit here comes at the end where Strange notes that the voids that Mikhail creates require concentration to maintain. He says that if Mikhail is injured or killed, these voids stop being voids. And the people who had been inside a void get, quote, expelled. Or, or maybe they get crushed to death by the molecules rushing back. Hard to say. Now, yeah. now Ruben, do you think this might be foreshadowing? <laughs> I, I think it might be a little bit of foreshadowing. Yes. Now, uh, a, a quick question. So, if you have to concentrate to maintain the voids, does he ever go to sleep? <laughs> Probably shouldn't think about such things, right? Yeah. One of those questions, yeah. 
Ben Persia doesn't want us to ask. Okay, that's fine. Uh, so now we're done with Domino and Sage, and we go inside the void ourselves to hang out with Chronicle. Uh, Mikhail has chosen Chronicler's next target. She's an Orcus operative named June Wei. Her parents, we're told, were killed in a highway collapse caused by a mutant battle, many such cases, uh, which is a, a fine reason for her to want to be part of an anti-mutant group. Her data page name checks Magneto, Astra, Toad, and the Scarlet Witch as being part of the fight that killed her parents. Now, are you a, a long-time Astra fan, Ruben? Big, big fan of Astra? She's, that's a deep pull. Yeah, I just was like, whatever. It's a name. Yeah, she's a I teleporter. Who that is. She's okay. an Alan Davis character, part of Magneto's Brotherhood in the late 90s. I think she has like eight or nine total appearances. Mm-hmm. Uh, a key thing with her is that she, after I think three or four retcons, turned out to be the creator of Joseph, that Magneto clone. Mm. Now, he's still currently running around on that Scarlet Witch series that I, I dropped after about three issues, but I hear he's still there. Yeah, okay. And some online sources say that Astra was one of those villains who showed up on Krakoa in that famous scene in House of X number five, you know, the uh, one the, where Apocalypse came back, and they yeah. all said, that was one that made, made the internet crazy. We all said, how can the villains be on the island? There's a small background character that has kind of a little collar shape around her neck that looks like some pictures of Astra, so... Maybe that's her. She hasn't shown up on panel ever since. But that's anyway, cool. kind of a, I, it, it took me down an Astro, you know, internet gopher hole. So I, I figured I, I would share that with folks. So Chronicler seems pretty pleased with his choice. Uh, Junwei is someone who doesn't have a lot of power herself, but she operates nearby to power, adjacent to power. Someone Chronicler thinks that he can do great things. With. So at this point, I think Chronicler is still more or less loyal to Mikhail. I don't think, it's hard to say exactly when he makes his, his turn here, when he decides mentally, okay, I'm, I'm out, I'm going to get myself out of this. But at least right now, it seems like he's still kind of on board. Do you think so, or do you think he's already, already checked out? Um, I think he has always been willing to make a break from Mikhail, but I don't think he has a plan at that point in time. Okay, yeah, he's, he's always kind of been person. a little iffy. He doesn't like the way he's been treated. He doesn't think he's appreciated as an artist. Again, I my brain wants to go back to, is this a metaphor for comic writers and artists versus editors or the corporate types, that kind of a thing? He, he doesn't think he's being treated very well. I like this plan, and I think Junwei is an interesting character to grab, right? So all of this is like, Mikhail's kind of clever. This makes sense to me. The only thing is, I, I kind of wish this character had shown up elsewhere, because they kind of show, like, oh, she's in the background of all these important things. Yeah, like, it I'm would pretty have been sure great I haven't if she had really been talking planted. to Devo and Nimrod and <laughs> Moira. I was like, that's kind of BS. Like, they, yeah, she's not I, As far there. as I can tell, this is her actual first appearance. No one's found her in the background, you know, hidden there as an Easter egg retro- retroactively, yeah. but which would have been really cool, but oh, yeah. Well. So Chronicler lets Colossus go, right? He can only work with one person at a time, one character. Mm-hmm. He had been worried that the sudden transition, no conclusion to the literary arc, might might kill Colossus. But I think maybe being part of the beginning of June's story was like an ending to Colossus's story to kind of make the transition easier. That's how I'm reading it anyway. And Colossus finds himself in front of an easel, fully loaded with paint and brushes. Now, who set this up for Colossus? Is this a gift from Chronicler? I don't think Mikhail would, would do his brother a kindness like this. I don't know. I kind of thought it was Mikhail. Because he sort of, when Chronicler drops his grip on him, Mikhail puts his hand up to Colossus and you see his kind of like weird box things appear. I I viewed that as Mikhail like sending his brother away 
and being one of those villains that's like, I can't kill my brother, but I also don't trust you to fight me, so I'm just going to put you away somewhere, and then look at me. I know you like to paint, so here's an easel. Okay, I could buy that. Yeah, it's it's a weird relationship in that family. I mean, a lot of weird X-Men families between the Summerses and, and, uh, and these folks, so I'll go with that. I like it. And I have lost my place, so hit the edit that out button. Okay, here we go. So as Chronicler goes about trying to set up a link with June, Colossus starts painting. And the painting that Colossus creates looks familiar. It, it shows a monstrous version of Mikhail holding on to a relatively much smaller Colossus and biting off his arm. Now, Mikhail here, he kind of looks like one of the Dominators from DC, which is weird. He's got a like, circular mouth with all the teeth. I, I think that's probably just an accident, but I, I'm sure on purpose here, this looks like a, a famous painting I've seen before. It looks a lot like a painting by the art, a Spanish artist Goya, not, not the bean guy. Uh, he's It's a painting called Saturn Devouring His Son. Now, I don't really get the correspondence here because in that painting, you know, the, the, the old myth about Saturn, he, he thought his children would overthrow him, so he would you know, kill or imprison all his offspring. And this is a horrible, beautiful, but horrible picture about that. So I don't really get the correspondence here, Mikhail Colossus being brothers, not father-son, but maybe this is just artist Robert Gill had to pick something to kind of inspire him, and that's what he went with. Have you ever seen that painting, that Goya painting? No, not familiar with it. But I'll, that's, I'll send that's you a link later, and it's, it, it's flipped left to right, but other than that, it's, it's you know, the, the setting and just the posing of everybody is, is exactly the same. So when he finishes the painting, Colossus has some kind of moment of clarity, it seems. He kind of gasps, looks at the pink-purple blood on his hand, or paint on his hand, which, you know, is meant to look like blood. It's weird, though. We see Colossus paint with his pink-purple color you know, from the side really vigorously. When we see the final painting, I, I don't see that color there, which is weird. <laughs> oh, well. Lots uh, of blending. <laughs> I guess so. It's like pontalism, really teeny, teeny, tiny dots, barely visible to the naked eye, but they're there. Anyway, time to wrap this issue up. Uh, Mikhail presses Chronicle to, you know, hurry up and, and bond with June so that she can have her butt sent back to Orcus before anyone knows she's missing. Chronicler, super frustrated, says, you know, my power doesn't work like this. I'm an artist. Uh, Chronicler has been frustrated a long time with Mikhail. You don't even know how Chronicler got in this situation, right? I'd, I'd read a one shot yeah. just explaining how he ended up here, why he's working for Mikhail. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to get that one shot, but I'd read it. So now Chronicler puts a plan into action. Now, we know it was a plan because he had specifically not had Colossus confiscate June's gun back when she was, she was abducted. So it's not purely spur of the moment. And now he, he has June shoot Mikhail in the back uh, two or three times. Chronicler is so excited by this action that he momentarily loses connection to June. She almost shoots him too because, you know, he's a mutant. He doesn't like mutants. But then he quickly writes down, then they became best friends. And, and that was good. So that might be working. Uh, so far, so good. But uh, there's some bigger problems. Remember that, that foreshadowing for the Doctor Strange data page? Yeah, uh, Mikhail is either dead or really injured. And the void starts coming apart. We get one page of rumbling, just to remind us that Laura, Quint, and Omega Red, hey, they're here too. They're part of the team. And we get a close-up of Colossus with his very dead-looking brother. And the issue ends. Now, not the most subtle of issues, but a, a pretty decent one. Some big things happen. You know, Chronicler finally throws off the yoke. Mikhail seems to be dead, although previews suggest, yeah, maybe not so much. And uh, so what's going to happen? Are the captive members of X-Force going to be thrown back into reality? Or will they all be crushed to death? What, what do you think? Which, which one, A or B? <laughs> They're all dead now. Yeah, this was the last issue of X-Force. That's what I assume. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I actually I, liked it. I I think the drama's good. The page turns fine. Um, the only thing that like made me a little weirded out about this, and maybe this is how we get away from what appears to be the ending, is they talk a lot about how in these no spaces, Mikhail's pretty much like a god that he controls everything. So it seemed a little strange to me that you know a few bullet wounds would just finish him off. He was surprised, right? You can tell he's very distracted. He does he doesn't care about the details. He just wants Chronicle to do what he tells him to do, and he's already turned his attention to the next thing. So I buy that he's surprised. He's not expecting it. So maybe that's why he wasn't able to immediately counter or whatever. Yeah. And then I'm kind of curious, like, how did he end up in this other no space with Colossus? I guess he just sapped himself there. Kind of unclear. It's hard to see. Yeah. Is this all one place? I mean, I've been complaining a while for now that there's no background. It's all black. But I mean, it is. It is literally a void so i'm not going to complain about that anymore and he controls it all so exactly how the geography of it works it can be whatever it needs to be i think i like the cover for the next issue where it's mikhail and Colossus like fighting right right which again makes me think that yeah mikhail's probably not actually dead dead just makes me think colossus sees his wounded brother he goes up and starts strangling him (laughs) (laughs) yeah we still don't know exactly how Colossus is going to react now because it's been weird in previous times, like when they did the time travel bit and he was suddenly free of the influence and he was still kind of foggy in the head, didn't really know what was going on. So we'll see just how much he remembers of, of all the horrible things he had. So yeah, I think it was a, a pretty good issue. I, I think we only have two issues of this title remaining, unless Marvel pulled a switcheroo on us again. Uh, so it's good to see some long simmering plot points, really long simmering, coming to their fruition. I, I do want to see the team together again before everything wraps up, right? We would like to see, you know, some sort of, you know, Domino and Sage have to reunite with Colossus and company at some point just to kind of, it, it's, it's X-Force. We need to see X-Force together before it ends. But uh, yeah, I had fun with this. Nothing super deep, nothing super meaningful, but fun, which means uh, 7.8 out of 10. Why not? I'm just a little under you, 7.5. I thought this was a good issue. A lot of things that I wanted to see. Um, we're out there and there were some fun little things to think about and it does seem to be wrapping up plot points. So I had, good for I had, ben Percy. I had been at 7.5 written down. I, I, I had so much fun talking about it. I bumped myself up to 78. So yeah, right in that range. It's, it's, it's a good time. And Hey, they gave us a little bit of uh, explanation about Mikhail's powers, which that's pretty important, right? It will. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's a big collector thing. If you want to have the issue where they finally explained what the hell's up with Mikhail, but, uh, that's what happened here. Uh, moving on, we have some more Ben Percy, uh, Wolverine number 38, Last Mutant Standing Part 2, written by the aforementioned Ben Percy, art by Juan Jose Rip, colors by Frank Darmada, letters by Corey Pettit, designed by Tom Muller, and Jay Bowen. Now, this is the issue that makes me wonder if Ben Percy was kicked out of the X-Slack, because in so many ways, it's just so inconsistent with what we have seen other places. Did you, did you get that same feeling like, how can this be happening or am I being too picky? I don't think Ben Percy is um, getting invited to the parties. It's pretty clear from this uh, that he is a little uh, misinformed or underinformed. Yeah, it's, it's an okay story, but just in like small ways, an editor could have gone in and said, you know, let's tweak this, this, and this just to make things hang together a little little tighter, make it seem more like one universe. And that, that didn't happen. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of curious, is it a Ben Percy problem or is it an artist problem? Like somebody, I, mm-hmm. I could see this be being like Ben Percy just saying like, oh, they're at this auction with a bunch of Krakoa stuff, right? 
And well, then whoever the writer is, is like, that yeah. would be giving the artist a whole lot of power. Yeah. I don't know how somebody ben messed works, up but. big time because there's a <laughs> lot of weird stuff at that auction that should not be there. Okay, we'll we'll get to that. Let's let's start up at the beginning. Uh, we're we're at a bar. Always a good place to start a story. And uh, having just partnered up with Hulk to kill all his clones last issue, Logan drops by this Manhattan watering hole to recruit Captain America for a new team up. Now. Do you think Captain America would be rude enough to balance his beer mug on the edge of a pool table? Yeah, that. that I, I think so. he was raised better than that. I that's, think that's damaging the pool table, right? Put I know it's kind of a di- it. it's kind of a dive, maybe, but not that much of a dive. And yeah, you, know, you don't do that. No, rude. Yep. Uh, also, there's some uh, lip service paid to the existence of the Uncanny Avengers team, but in a way that feels kind of tacked on, right? It doesn't affect the story. It almost feels like at the lettering stage, someone said, oh, yeah, we should probably mention that there's this this other team. I also feel like Captain America would not be drinking a big beer stein. Like, he would keep it at a pint. That's a lot more responsible. <laughs> not like I a could, cold glass of milk? You think it actually be No, no I, I can see him drinking a beer. <laughs> that's fine. But I don't, I don't know. That's a big-ass stein that he's got, and I, I don't think Captain America- I don't America, know. I thought up there in the Pacific Northwest, you guys drank big beers. I don't know. Maybe that's just my uh, my mental stereotype. But you have to build up a tolerance to drink that much, and he doesn't have any special powers, right? He's been around. He's got the super soldier serum. He's been around for a long time. I I, I don't think a I don't think a couple of beers would uh, would knock him on his ass that quickly. Maybe not that as beers as not, big as his head. Not as much as like Logan or Deadpool with the healing factor. But I think the super soldier serum's got got him covered. I see. Okay. Okay. So now that we have that important information out of the way. It's uh, a freaking pitcher, dude. Sorry, I'm just looking at the art again. <laughs> He's not even drinking out of a stein. It's a fucking pitcher. Oh, well. Okay, oh, whatever. Well. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> the other thing here is Logan does not give a crap about being seen in public. Yeah. So, oh, no one's going to recognize me. He's he's Wolverine. He's he's a dis- He has a distinctive look about him, and yeah. he's kind of famous. And this is a world where Orcas has, depending what book you read, maybe threatened to kill a whole bunch of humans anytime immune is spotted. So. Yeah, that that he doesn't even put on the magic core eye patch. Nothing. He, he should do a little. I, I did little laugh. More careful here. That was a good line from Ben Percy, where he's like, "Are you worried?" And he's like, "Dude, I put on an eye patch, and nobody knows who I am." I was like, "Okay, touche." <laughs> Which I'd be okay with that if he were actually wearing the eye patch. Yeah, just you know, just put on the you old know, Clark Kent's glasses. The patch. Do something look, to make yeah. me think he's trying. Maybe that would have been better. Okay, so we're immediately off to our next scene, and in this book, just. There is no connecting tissue. It's just big scene, big scene, big scene. So this second big scene is at an Orcus container ship somewhere in the Pacific. Uh, and so Orcus has its own container ship. That's good to know. Heavily armored one, too. Uh, not a lot of surveillance tech, though, as Logan and Cap pilot their noisy craft right up to it, and the pair scale the side uh, with suction cups. And, okay, it does turn out that everyone on board is dead. But I don't think they know that yet. Anyway, as this is happening, Logan's narration boxes tell us the ship is packed with stuff that the mutants, quote, left behind on Krakoa for Orcus to just come by and scoop up. So when the hell did that happen? As far as we know, uh, Professor X is still guarding the island, and nothing's been taken off except for maybe the stones around the uh, that one gate. But other than that, I, maybe this is set in the future? I could try to no prize it and make it work, but I think in reality it's just Ben Percy got this wrong and nobody told him. Nobody told Sebastian Shaw that <laughs> you could. Oh, it's all gone already. Yeah, that yeah, would be funny. I like away. that theory. Yeah. <laughs> uh, are you still there, Ruben? I had some yeah. little sounds there. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. Even okay. I'm withholding commentary until we get to the what actually was taken. It gets very specific. Very. There's some stuff that very clearly Sebastian was like trying to get, and it would be strange that it was easily removed and put on this container ship. Okay. Well, well, here on this first ship, because there's a second ship on this first ship, Logan and Cap find themselves in a situation really similar to Mikhail and Galenite. Right? They're here to raid the ship, but somebody beat them to it. Everyone boards undead. Almost everyone. There's one person kind of three quarters dead, just alive enough so we have an action scene. And we have Logan get shot in the shoulder, a couple bullets bounce off Cap's shield, and the, the guy says one word. He says, cowboys. Now, I thought this meant he was a football fan from Dallas, but no, <laughs> to Logan, it means something else. And the containers are empty. And this also was rough here because there's a lot of containers on this ship. Looking at just that one big picture we have, the, the wide picture, there's at least a hundred containers, and containers are like it's like a train car, right? Like the back of a really big truck. So this is a huge ship. Should take forever to search it. But Captain Logan open one container, say, "Oh, <laughs> all the stuff's gone." Yeah, unloading all of those containers. I don't think they would fit on the. Uh, are they taking all the, the containers? Are they only stealing the mutant stuff? There's a lot of questions. Oh, you're saying Orcus was moving more than just the Krakoa stuff. Yeah, maybe... There's some Amazon goods on there, too. Sure, why not? You've got a whole container ship. It's inefficient (laughs) to ship it back and forth half empty, right? You might as well move some crap from AliExpress across the ocean. (laughs) Yes, Alibaba. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So now we get a data page that's a letter from Jeff Bannister. And I can't tell, was this letter written before or after the scene we just saw? Did, Did Logan know when they got to the ship or suspect... That it was already adrift and might be deserted? Or it, is had this- to be, it had to be after. In my, okay. my head canon, he basically contacted Jeff saying, this is what happened. And then he writes back and he's like, yeah, it's- That's pretty quick turnaround then because <laughs> Banish says, yeah, that, that Orca ship is adrift in the current, which would have been useful information to- couple pages ago. And Bannister very conveniently says the container ship crossed path with a privately chartered luxury cruise ship that he's pretty sure is connected to Legacy House that cowboy-themed illegal auction group from way back when in the series. And Orca seems pretty incompetent if this is what happened to them, right? They're heavily armored carrier. They're like, oh, it's just a carnival cruise ship. No worries. Let's just Killed dock with it. And moved all the stuff over. And how quickly did this happen? And wouldn't Legacy House be, have used a different boat, a different crew, and then put it on the auction ship? It just, it, it doesn't make sense. Again, this feels like it, it's kind of compressed. Maybe, again, maybe Ben Percy thought he had more time to tell this and he had to squish it together. How do you board from a Carnival Cruise Line onto like a Jetpacks. Okay. Cowboy-themed jetpacks shaped like horses. Okay. Because okay. that's how cowboys get around. <laughs> okay. I would have loved to see that. <laughs> yeah, Juan Jose Reap could, could draw the crap out of that picture. But I can see it in my head and that's good enough. So anyway, Logan and Cap head off to raid another vessel. That's that's literally the the location, according to the caption. Another vessel. Later. Later another vessel. Where is it? No idea. Out in the ocean somewhere, no sign of land, surrounded by dozens of fancy yachts and at least one submarine. I kind of like seeing the submarine. Did you notice that? Right there in the corner. These, presumably these belong to the rich, the rich weirdos all here to bid on what Legacy House has to sell. Yeah. Who's rocking the submarine? It's interesting. So Cap and Logan scale the ship again. They must be getting pretty good at this by now. And this entry is a bit more comedic. They grab a pair of Legacy House goons and steal their outfits. And this brings on the best joke of the issue. Yeah. Uh, Logan complains the one. clothes don't fit. 
And Cap says, quote, that's because not everyone is shaped like a box. <laughs> that made me laugh. I'd like to be reminded Logan is just this weird little dude, right? He's, he's not actually suave, sophisticated Hugh Jackman. He's, he's a little, little twisted Wolverine guy. Fantastic. And this is a great crowd here, scene here too. I love this page. We see the guests. We see some merchandise. We see a buffet. Can't be a cruise ship without a buffet. Uh, so there's some, there's two pigs running around. There's Spider-Man villain, Mr. Negative. I think I see Hammerhead, a guy with a baseball bat. I, this, this is like a Where's Waldo page. I could stare at this page for hours. I think this is fantastic. Did you have any favorite details from, from this page here? I liked looking at it, but I didn't, nothing really jumped out at me. I guess I'm not as uh, into like the broader Marvel universe as I'd I like, like to be. The, the hooded figures kind of picking out the best things from the corner of the buffet. I don't know who they're supposed to be, but I... I like seeing them there. I think, yeah, this this is a fantastic page. As far as details, I did think it was funny that they have ice sculptures of the X-Men. <laughs> and then also I, there's pigs. There's I just guess pigs. I what that is. Around. Yeah. yeah. There's a, a, an elephant lady leaving a slime trail behind her. I didn't even notice that before now. This who, is, who this has is the, pigs? They're cowboys? They're cow... I, I don't know. That'd be cows, wouldn't it? I don't know. Is who that part the of them or is that part of some villain that's here to buy stuff? And who's the old lady with the baseball bat? Maybe I that's could my write favorite. a twelve-part crossover, just ending up in the culmination of this scene. It's this is such yeah. a great scene. Uh, so then we we turn the page and we go to the actual auction, and here we have some very impressive items at this auction. Again, this is where the continuity makes you go. Hmm. So we have let's start off at small, like small as in not upsetting. We have an organic-looking Krakoan battle suit. Looks like something Forge would have made. That's fine. Yep. That could have been lost anyway, right? Yep. Krakoan diving suit. Uh, it looks like it comes from like X-Force 15 and 16, another Forge thing. Sure. Uh, there's a high-tech rifle, probably Cables or Bishop. I don't rec- Do you recognize that particular rifle? Mm-mm. I don't know that But matters, again, I'm but fine with cool. that. Not, not offensive. Yeah. Uh, we see Wolverine's adamantium surfboard from X-Force 25 and 26. Yeah. Again, that's At first, fine. I thought that was the Silver Surfer surfboard. But- <laughs> yeah, I did for a second. Then I was like, oh, yeah, I know this is a Ben Percy thing. We get a Magneto helmet. Okay, that's starting to be a little little troubling. Yeah. We get a Cyclops visor. I mean, he's been killed places. He could have had it knocked off. I could explain that. Or he has extras. I mean, he has extras. Same, that was my only other thing for the Magneto helmet is maybe he's got extras. Because it should be crushed, right? Like, didn't he put that thing on? Um, oh, my gosh. What was oh, his name? Uh, yeah. The, the, the Locust file, file guy. leader guy. Yeah. yeah. And then crushed his head. So, it shouldn't be a yeah. helmet. That's- that is the last time we saw a helmet, isn't it? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and we also see a corset that looks like it belonged to Emma Frost. Ooh, wonder yeah. where they got that from. Little that's panty going for, going on. That's going for a lot of money. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, especially if you haven't washed it. Uh, and <laughs> then, moving on, uh, three Mr. Sinister-related items that really made me question my sanity. Yeah. We see Psycat, Professor Plod, and we see a Moira clone. Yeah. Well, that doesn't work at all. No, those are the ones that bugged me. The We just saw these at- uh, In Immortal. In, Immortal, yeah. Yeah, at the end when Professor X goes down under and finds out that something's up with his brain, Psycat, Professor Plot were right there. So maybe you could say that Mr. Sinister made multiples of these? I mean, cloning is his thing? And I, I went back and looked at the end of Sins of Sinister Dominion, and I thought all the Moiras got blowed up. Yes. I Otherwise, this is gone. a real problem, right? Because this would be one of the ones you can kill and reset the timeline well, with. If it was elsewhere, that would be a problem because all the ones in his lab, they got hit with a virus from Rasputin that undid their mutants. Oh, okay. So that turned that off. So if it was there, it's depowered. But anyway, yeah, th- this didn't feel right, but ignoring that for now. 
So then we get another funny bit that happens. Uh, one of the Legacy House goons spots Cap walking around with his Captain America shield in full view. So Cap thinks he's in disguise as a cowboy, but he still has a shield out, which is kind of dumb. But luckily, the goon just thinks, oh, that shield is one more auction item. Tells Cap, who he thinks is one of his guys, yeah, just bring this right here to this room where we store all the stuff. Very conveniently bringing Logan and Cap right to the heart of the operation. It's nice. I actually like that. I like that because they make a joke about, oh, Captain America must be a mutant. Yeah, Especially that was cool. since like we were that. all questioning, like, how did Cap get resurrected during Judgment Day? Many questions were asked, and why wouldn't Legacy House folks ask him to? So I thought that was a clever, clever joke. And now we get another fantastic page I could look at forever. Uh, this is their their warehouse, basically. We see, let's see, we have a lot of Hellf- Hellfire Gala gowns from previous years. We see one of the Shadow King's fezes, a painting maybe by Colossus. Uh, my favorite bit, I think, was that whole rack of tiki drink cups from the Green Lagoon. I, I love that. <laughs> there's like a hundred of them there because of all the drinking they did. That just yep. made me laugh. There's, there's, yeah, there's some vases with X on them. I don't know. Is that a specific reference or just something Krakoa-ish? I can't tell. Yeah, nothing that registered for me. But a, a cool scene I could look at. For. Also, a whole bunch of guns and knives and some weird bones. I don't know whose skulls those are. I, I bet that's a sp- specific reference. There's like a bird skull and like a goblin kind of skull. I don't know who those are. Uh, but Logan grabs another item, his stolen Muramasa blade, and now the fight's on. And here it goes super, super quick. So fast, I don't really know what's happening. Uh, there's a big fight. Logan jumps out a window. And uh, does he sink the ship, Ruben, by stabbing it in one place with his claws? I think that's what they were trying to say is he, he just cuts through He pops it like a balloon? And he cuts a hole in the floor and it goes down really fast. Is that how cruise ships work? Because I, I never want to go on a cruise ship, but now I really never want to go on a cruise ship. I mean, haven't people seen the Titanic? Have, yeah. Don't they know you got to have compartmentalization or something? Yeah. That, so that it shouldn't well, work. It should not work. Because I don't you know how the cruise ship safety goes. I assume it doesn't go this fast, but maybe because he cut from like the top to the bottom that there was a continuous hole that there was no compartmentalization. Ah, that's a really nice try, <laughs> Ruben. That's a, a, a kind that you're trying to do to Ben Percy. I don't think it works. There is a snake in one of these bedrooms on his way down. I hadn't noticed that before. Yes. Again, the artist, uh, Juan Jose Reeb, doing, he gets the, the MVP for this issue for sure. I'd also like to say, um, how do these people get, if this happens as quickly as it looks in the panels, how did any of these people get off the ship? Because then we see them all in like... Time is strange because we turn the page and in four diagonal... You know, panels, we get the ship starting to go down, like tipping up with helicopters everywhere. We see people running around, terrified out of their mind. As there's water flooding into the room that they're in, right? Shooting into that room. Next panel, the whole cruise ship is underwater. And the fourth and final panel, everybody's alive and safe in lifeboats, being helped onto those lifeboats by Cap and Logan. Again, this is a whole issue on this page. Something something was skipped here. Isn't there a vortex when something this big goes down too? And would these certainly think so. Ranking ink little lifeboats survive yeah, that. Everybody, everybody. I'm pretty sure everyone there. on that ship is dead. But for some reason, they had to say no. They're all alive, including Very Captain weird. America. I would say Logan killed Captain America. <laughs> may have killed himself. That would make the mutants look real bad. Killing yeah. Captain America. Okay, we get one final scene of Cap handing over several container loads of mutant stuff to Nick Fury for some reason. Well, apparently, it's a whole secret warehouse hidden in the Catskills. 
nice place. Why not? It does look like the kind of place where the Ark of the Covenant might be hidden, that kind of warehouse. Mm -hmm. So, Ruben, how did all this stuff get here? (laughs) It was on a cruise ship that sank in like (laughs) two minutes. Did they get it off the ship while it was sinking? Did they salvage it from the bottom of the ocean? Yeah. We skipped so many steps. Wolverine unloaded it. Don't worry about it. Doesn't he sink with the adamantium in his bones? (laughs) I don't see a life jacket. I don't know how. She should be dead. I don't think you could have a life jacket that would prevent. Wolverine from going down. I don't down. think so. He's he's dense in all sorts of ways. Which would be really interesting, right? Like, he's got to be very similar to uh, Mookie D. Luffy. Like, you can't have him in okay. water or he dies. Could be. the uh, Yeah. the uh, I don't know what, uh, what, him what food a, it would be that gives you claws like that. But Yeah. Well, they've said he's like hundreds of pounds, right? Because of all the metal. Yeah. And how do you put somebody like sinks. that on like an inflatable raft? Wouldn't that sink the freaking <laughs> yeah, they, inflatable they don't raft? Always, they're not always super consistent with the Wolverine physics there. Yeah. Anyway, what a what a weird story. Yeah. The art is the, the clear highlight. Detailed page with lots of characters, so many little items, so many little places you could write your own story. It's great stuff. Uh, the action scenes, as always, are top notch. Very exciting. Again, really helps. At least on first read, distract you from all the inconsistencies because it just looks so exciting. The faces are a little variable. There's a couple places, uh, places, especially on page 19, where Logan, he looks like a monkey. Speaking of Monkey D. Luffy, he, he looks like a monkey. He's a weird-looking guy, but he should not look like a refugee from the Planet of the Apes. That's weird. Really quick, I'm looking at that last page where Cap's talking to um, Nick, Fury. Nick Fury, and Wolverine's just staring at him, I guess, revving his motorcycle. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Dick is he? Just like yeah. taunting Nick Fury. And also, why does Nick Fury say that he's a bad one? Just because I'm everyone says sure he's a, he's a tough guy. Between, I don't know what the history is between Nick Fury, especially this Nick Fury and Wolverine. Yeah. I'm sure lots of stuff has happened. So yeah. Really weird. Some weird holes, but the, the art, I, I'm not going to complain about too much. I think the, the pluses greatly outnumber those couple little weird weird bits. But the story had had so many holes. Yeah. And we've been saying for a while that this is an action movie and don't sweat the details. This has started to push my patience for not sweating the details. It's just it's just too much. It breaks my immersion a little bit. Yeah. This to me was a an attempt. This is like putting the toys back in the toy box issue where for some reason Ben Percy felt like he had to wrap up the Legacy House arc. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like he gets a bunch more issues, right? The Sabretooth story. I don't know why he felt like he needed to deal with Legacy House. I didn't really think they needed to be resolved but i guess they are through this issue yeah i do they get arrested we don't I think know. they're dead they might they made only only the bad guys drown although kind of everybody on that ship was probably a bad guy of one form or another so who knows so yeah it's, it's a fun book that makes you ask a lot of fun questions and we had some laughs talking about it uh but yeah i i can't give a book with this many holes in it more than a uh 6.3 out of 10 mostly art i'm gonna go with the six i i would just annoyed me but it was fun talking about talking about its score would probably be around a seven seven five <laughs> but the story itself is just weak so i think it's really like a six yeah I, I, again it, it takes that action movie and turn off your brain bit and it seems to in, intentionally raise questions about where these items come from and the answer is they shouldn't be there other thing i want to say is didn't gene give him very clear instructions to avenge the mutants Following the Hellfire Gala, she was dying, and this is what he does. Uh, yeah, that's not really he, so much avenging. I don't tries know. to go back and get some equipment, and it's sort of weird. It doesn't seem. It seems like he, he was set up as you know, 
get your vengeance against Orcus, but he's doing everything except that. Yeah, this book has often felt not quite aligned with the rest of the X-Books, right? It's it's clearly in the same world. It has lots of small touches that are supposed to link them together, but just in tone and in the, the big picture, it always seemed like a little bit off. But we have one more book to talk about that is, like, I think we can say, has a very different goal and purpose an idea of what a comic book should be. This is X-Men Red, number 16, The Fall of Prometheus, written by Al Ewing, art by Yildere Chenar, colors by Federico Blee, letters by Ariana Mayer, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. Uh, there's also a backup story we'll may talk about at the end. Uh, so this book starts off with uh, a scene in space, a nice, a nice gentle, kind of ease us back into this world scene. Uh, the spacecraft is piloted by our old pal, Craig Marshall, that NASA guy who adopted two Iraqi kids after all that business with Oranos, and he's working for Dr. Peter Corbeau. Do you recognize Dr. Corbeau? Well, I wouldn't have recognized the name if we hadn't just two weeks ago revisited that story about Gene piloting the space shuttle through radiation, the whole you know, birth of the Phoenix thing. Mm -hmm. Dr. Corbeau was the NASA guy on that space shuttle, the one who Gene took all how to pilot the ship information out of his head? Yeah. That was him, this guy with a Captain and Tennille hat on. Oh, cool. So, two issues ago, I hadn't noticed this, I had to look it back up, uh, Craig Marshall said he had a job offer from Peter Corbeau to to work at Port Prometheus. So, yeah. this is the outcome of that. He's not working on Port Prometheus now, and we'll see why in a moment. He's working to shuttle mercenaries back and forth from Earth to kind of assist Storm. That's a fun so, little detail, though, and a cool continuity thing. I would never have thought twice about the name had we not just done the whole Phoenix thing. So I felt pleased to notice the name. So the mercenaries that are being transported right now are Weaponless Zen, also Blackjack O'Hare, who's that bunny-looking dude, and the Prince of Power. These two goofballs we saw Zen hanging out with in Red Number 8. So they're not brand new to the book, and Ewing has used them before. Yeah, they were a big part of his Guardians of the Galaxy story. They were part of the team for a brief minute. Prince of Power be in particular being kind of like comic relief. Yeah, he is currently the holder of the power stone of those those major gems. So he's he's a big, powerful guy. So theoretically, he should be useful once he gets to Mars. I don't know if we're going to see much out of him or if he's just kind of here for you know, color, but he's on his way. Uh, we also see a nice little bit with Zen using her mutant power to paint the truth, uh, to kind of draw a little doodle for these kids. And making them feel better. So that was a nice little moment from her, I thought. So yeah, a, a fun emotional scene. I think the major function of the scene plot-wise is probably to get Weaponless Zen back on Mars with the rest of her family. Remember, she's the daughter of the Fisher King, sister of Korra. We need to get, get these guys together at some point. Well, we've had these kids, these Iraqi kids, plus, mm -hmm. um, what's his name, the NASA Craig. scientist. Yeah, so I guess this also helps us know they're not in the conflict. That is good to know, because the scene ends with Craig saying they'll have to divert from their original destination, which was Port Prometheus. So when we turn the page, we find out that Port Prometheus basically doesn't exist anymore. It's a gruesome scene that might remind us of any number of things we've seen in the news lately that we're not going to talk about, but I don't can't help but think about them. Uh, we see that war, that's the Horseman War, Daughter of Apocalypse. She has covered the town in flame. This was the spaceport, the main town linking Mars and Earth, kind of a stronghold for Storm and her group, because that's where their whole headquarters was. Now, her brother, Famine, he thinks that fire is too good an end, too like noble an end for a place like this, where a 
merchants and tradespeople live. And so he drowns the ruined town in water. I mean, he pulls water out of the atmosphere. He makes you know, this giant statue of himself, drops it on the town. Now, Nova had been running around trying to put out the flames. This isn't really even his fight. He just kind of ended up here, right? He's just, he's not a mutant. He's not an Iraqi. He's not really connected. But Well, he's a space police guy, right? He, and I think a theme we're seeing in this series, especially this issue, is individuals really taking on the burden of protecting people, even when it's not necessarily their job. We're going to see a lot more of this, I think. So who could stop these four monsters? Storm. The answer is Storm. She can stop them. Uh, she's in like full superpowered super saiyan form here right yes yeah. uh she zaps famine with a lightning bolt out not totally dead we find out but out of out of action she puts out war's fire with a whirlwind she's about to duel with death a last dance he says in reference to their actual dance way back at that other world dinner party you might remember but pestilence his sister pestilence uh she's not the most honorable one death is all about honor and following the rules and doing the right thing, even if it's, you know, a creepy right thing. He has his his code. Pestilence tries to sneak in and shoot Storm with one of the disease arrows. Now, who who saves Storm? Because Storm's Retrider. not gonna Retrider. It's Nova. He zooms yeah. right in between. Sadly for him, he's not nigh invulnerable when he's blasting, unlike some characters. Uh the arrow, I don't think it quite kills him. He's, I don't he's, know. He's it in a makes bad way. Look, he's in a bad way. And actually, I got a little nervous because remember the, was it X-Men? What, whatever. It was some title. No, it was, it was Iron Man. It was the Iron Man issue where we saw the cover of like the faux wedding, right? And we were going through saying like, who are all these characters? Mm-hmm. And I remember specifically saying that's not Rich Rider as Nova, right? It was like some little kid Nova. Oh, no. I was like, Al Ewing, you better not have killed off Rich Rider. So I don't know, but I mean, it creates some drama, right? It sure does. If he's not dead, he he looks like he probably wishes he was. He's in yes. really bad shape. Yes. So War, not at all pleased with the sister's interference. He's all about the rules and the honor. She broke the rules. She caused him dishonor. And so he kills her. She really is dead. Uh, he takes I off his- I thought that was cool too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He takes off his Anubis mask, which is like, it's a Cyclops thing, I guess. You, you know, it's like, in he can't control it. He has to put a mask on to block it. And when I looked it up on the wiki, it says it's a poisonous gas that comes out. It looks more like a beam, like a death beam. Whatever it is, she's dead, reduced to dust. And is death on Storm's side of the war now, or at least not entirely on Genesis? No, no, no. What, where is no. his position right now? So we've seen this before, that true Iraqi culture is individualistic, right? And if you are challenged, you have to either respond to the challenge and kill the person who's challenged you or retreat. And so he was in a one-on-one duel with Storm. And then when Pestilence stepped in and attacked to him, that was a challenge, right? Because he is, she like breached the Iraqi code. So I think he literally only killed her because he's like, you've challenged me. And as an Iraqi, I have to respond to the challenge and take you out. What is, is he now going to go back to Genesis and say, yeah, I brought back my wounded? No, I think he's going back to Finding Storm. I don't think that fight is resolved. Well, she doesn't, I mean, we don't see him the rest of the issue and Storm does some other stuff. So I don't really know what he's up to. I'm sure we'll see him next issue, but exactly his position is. Um, My view is that, is it Sizen of the Smoke? She shows up. Right. Or Siza. I think she ports, ports 
him away, but maybe not. Yeah, it's kind of unclear what, what he does now. So while all this was going on, Siza, I've been saying SZA, I don't know. SZA, yeah, whatever. I'm going to call her SZA, because that's what it is in my head. SZA of the Smoke, Fisher King's sister-in-law, a teleporter, she was sent to retrieve a particular item from Port Prometheus before it burns to the ground. What item was that? Um, I don't know exactly what you call it, but it's basically like the keys to Uranus's gateway or wherever yeah, they, he's- They call it the Oranos trigger in the book. Yeah. Which that surprised me. I, was, I had completely forgotten about that. Yeah. But we get Whatever helpful- the key is that gets Uranus out to kick some ass. Right. We get a That's helpful data page reminding people like me who forgot the details- that this is a, the gift given to Arako by the Eternals to kind of apologize for the whole Judgment Day situation. One free use of Oranos, that genocidal Eternal who killed all those Araki, made that giant pile of bones we saw over and over. Now, this trigger has an interesting method of operation. You don't just push a button or say a magic word. It's thought activated, but the thought has to be, quote, a full understanding of what activation meant, which is a pretty deep idea. You can't use this by accident. You can't cause gen- genocide without intentionally wanting genocide. You can't say afterwards, oops, I didn't know what I was doing Yes, because it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. So that that's that's a creepy thing to think about. Yep. I, again, echoes of things in the real world that we're not going to talk about, but I think makes the book feel a lot deeper and more resonant as we read it. And when we see Siza kind of like when she first grabs it and we see that if you're holding it, then- Uranus can talk to you. Yeah, very he knows who's Darth Vader, it. Star Wars, Emperor kind of vibes. Yeah, or right? like the ring from Lord of the Rings. That's kind of what I thought. But um, more personal. I thought it was kind of cool in the in the visual where we see Uranus sitting. He's got like a druid in the background all beat up because we remember poor druid. His, yeah, his punishment was being left in the same with, cell. Yeah. That was, that was a nice detail. Yeah. It did make me laugh at seeing him. Yeah, he's just kind of all busted up and broken and, and lying in a very uncomfortable position. Yes. He is not having having had a good time. So Scissor brings this cube, which is the, the trigger, to Storm. Now Storm will have the final say as to if and when to release Ornos. But this decision sits differently on her shoulders than it would on anybody else, really. Because again, we get this in a data page. It's that's done pretty well. These are the ones written from the future by Xylo, the history Arako mutant. Storm already has these huge Omega destructive capabilities all on her own. Yep. She made the atmosphere of Mars, right? At the first Hellfire Gala. She could turn the atmosphere against the planet, against Genesis. She doesn't really need Oranos to release Oranos-sized destruction, which starts to lean into the overpowered, perfect, unbeatable side of Storm that I'm not so much a fan of. But it does, I like that that Ewing puts her in this moral dilemma, right? And he's forcing his most powerful character to make the hardest decisions. And I think that's really good storytelling. Good stuff. Okay, anything else to say about this before we talk about our very final scene? Um, No, but we should talk also about briefly what's going on with Sunspot. Okay, tell me about Sunspot. Yeah, so Sunspot, I guess, uh, he grabs Fisher King and he's zooming him somewhere. I don't exactly know where or why, but... Um, yeah, they're kind of observing Port Prometheus from above. Yeah. Well, actually, they're, not, they're right at the place where last issue we saw everybody came through that Okara gate. And he talks about how, yeah, they just came up out of nowhere. I didn't see it coming until it was too late. Again, he's really another character taking all this responsibility on his own shoulders. He says, every death here is on me. Very, very much like Nova, I think, in this bit here. A lot of character growth for Sunspot for me, because a lot of times he... He seems to be very smart. We've seen that, right? He's had a lot of business success. 
but he's also been kind of just uh he never really uses that intelligence in a way that i guess is it's that helpful sometimes, you sometimes think that he's actually very selfish and kind of light and frothy and sometimes it seems like he's using that as a disguise to so people don't see through to his actual serious powerful plans so and in this yeah he definitely it's it's a serious version of sunspot that we don't always see so much no no jokes here yeah seems like some good character growth i guess that's why i wanted to talk about it yeah i, I think point. back to the beginning of the hawksbox era where and i was not like a big new mutants fan like the original mm-hmm. new mutants so he's not a character that really resonates with me and then we yeah, saw, he was always trying to get with like space girls yeah exactly and then in the early hickman era he was just a total dope and so right. it's interesting to see him especially being part of the you know the quiet council kind of growing up on the page. Yeah, he's a, a, a cool character. I, I, I have no idea where he's going to go after this era because we don't know where anybody's going to go after this era, but I, I do hope to see him again. Maybe he'll be in the uh, Resurrection of Magneto book as well that Ewing's writing. He seems to be a character that Ewing is, is really fond of and writes well. Okay, on to this last scene. It's a scene we've been waiting for for a long time. The third and... F- go ahead. <laughs> Abigail Cut off that all right. Abigail Brand would have no problem using the uh, Uranus key. So how about we get that over to her so she can make the tough decision? That is true. We we have to see her again sometime, right? Yes. He can't she can't not come back after being shuttled to I forget where it said where it was like like some really vague unknown place, nowhere, no place kind of a thing. Yeah. Like Fisher King Center. We we gotta see her again. That is is that who comes through this this Okara gate here on this last page? <laughs> Now, that would have been a hell of a reel, wouldn't it? Yeah. Have her, Abigail yeah. Brand come through with it? No. It's the next best person to come through the gate. It is yeah. Apocalypse. Now, this mm-hmm. is, as far as we can tell, the real Apocalypse, not some white hot room Phoenix nonsense. This is Apocalypse himself. He has that unnamed demon uh, from the Heralds of Apocalypse one shot on the shoulder, and behind him is a hooded figure. Abigail Brand. That is Abigail Brand. <laughs> here first, folks. Abigail Brand. Uh, yeah, I have written my notes. Any guesses, Ruben? But yeah, I knew who you were going to say. I, yeah, I mean, I don't really think that's who it is, but it is It is intriguing. Who it's, be It seems to be someone shadowy floating, character. Yeah. Right? I don't see any feet unless that's hidden behind Apocalypse somehow. Yeah, I don't know who that would be, but it's it's somebody important. It's, well, it's going to be somebody important. Otherwise, it wouldn't be on this page. Yeah. This is kind of looks like death, but, it, but that would like, not make like that much death, sense. Like the one that Thanos wants to, uh, yes. you know, marry. I, I don't think that's who it really is, but it's probably it's probably some generic, uh, whatever Kavanakaba person. <laughs> Aren't oh. they always yeah, working with could Apocalypse? Be. Could be a new horseman of some kind. He's always you know doing horseman things. <laughs> yeah, it's White Sword. We're gonna find out. Yeah, it could <laughs> could be White Sword. Oh, hmm. yeah. We'll I'll have to go back through some old issues and try to speculate who it might be. But yeah, as of now, no real guesses. Now, the location where this happens is also meaningful. Now, Apocalypse has arrived in the Autumn Lands, which is where mm-hmm. Magneto's house used to be before it got all blowed up in that huge battle with Vulcan. And Vulcan is still imprisoned underground here. And Apocalypse takes note of this. He described the location as, quote, dead lifeless rock, but with a sun, that's S-U-N, caged below it. And his final words, the final words of the whole issue are, here, we will remake the world. So something big is going to happen. I think I Vulcan's going to be Vulcan involved. There. Yeah, that's a cool, cool call out. I didn't. Yeah, he even calls that, that uh, a useful ingredient. So Vulcan's going to come back again. This is where we're almost done with this, this with this title. We're almost done with this whole era. Ewing's got to bring back all the little bits of story that he has scattered about. 
hopefully including Abigail Brand, but definitely Vulcan. We're going to see Vulcan. So yeah, this was a this was definitely the most important book of the week. Yeah, the biggest and I thought it was it was fun. It was epic, and I re- I really enjoyed it. I, we should have just I should have stopped right then. <laughs> <laughs> it has some some real themes. Like there's no theme really going on to Ben Percy's work in Wolverine X Force. Stuff happens. It's fun. But like here we have themes of like heroes taking responsibility. Nova and Roberto uh, Storm has this huge responsibility on her shoulders. Some big decisions have to be made. So yeah, a, a fast read. Uh, it often takes me a long time to get through red just because there's so much going on. This is a much faster read for me, but really substantive. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to see what happens next. The art looks great. The horsemen look terrifying, even though Storm takes them down a little too easily. You know, they, they shouldn't go out like that. You know, they should have stood up for a little bit more, I think. But that is my only quibble from the issue. And I think I got to give this a 9 out of 10. Nice. I'll join you. You're talking about it. I even got more excited about it. I totally forgot about Vulcan being down there. But some some cool connections with Vulcan and with Craig and yeah. with uh, Dr. Corbeau. And yeah, just Al Ewing has a plan, right? He has a plan. And Ernest, the, the, the voice of Ernest was great. Oh, that was fantastic. I, all the characters, I think, are interesting the way they are dealing with these issues. And it does just, it's really hard to tell a, a war story that feels large in scale, but this feels large in scale. And it's only been a few issues. It feels large in scale, and yet it focuses on individual characters too. So we see the human level and the epic level simultaneously, which, like you say, is, is tough to pull off. So, hell of a job, Al Ewing. Well, that was the end of the books we want to talk about this week. Next week, we have. Three more books we're going to be chatting about. Those are Invincible Iron Man, number 11, Children of the Vault, number 304, and Astonishing Iceman, number 305. So that's what we got looking forward. But until that day comes when uh, folks listen to us talk about those things, what might they do with themselves, Ruby? Really? You got to read more X-Men comics, but you do not have to read the Sunspot and Shark Girl story at yeah, the end of X-Men Red. Which we are not going to talk about because it's totally garbage. You have to pay an extra buck for it, but they can't make you read it. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>